Each week on Emergency, you will hear discussions from EMTs, paramedics, physicians, respiratory therapists, nurses, and other healthcare professionals who are experienced providers in emergency medical care. These guests discuss their personal experiences in the world of emergency, as well as what it takes to provide care in some of the most stressful environments possible. There will also be honest conversations with people who have received emergency medical care, and they will bravely share their experiences as a patient who may have needed an emergency intervention. Expect funny, educational, and insightful conversations, which will illuminate the humanistic side of an often misrepresented profession. The Emergency Podcast is hosted by me, Samantha Barella, owner of Emerge Education Solutions and I'm also a currently licensed paramedic. I want to give you a heads up that um, our episode today may contain some profanity language as well as some uh, gross descriptions about human anatomy and injuries and illnesses. So listener discretion is advised. Let's jump into our episode. I want to have your attention for a quick second um, because I want to talk about something serious. We have a brotherhood in EMS and fire. That brotherhood is when one of us falls down, we all rally and pick each other up. Well, one of our own has fallen down. Marco Schomburg is a firefighter with the City of Santa Fe Fire Department who was on a wildland fire last fall. He was short of breath and started coughing up blood and was diagnosed with valley fever. That valley fever has paralyzed his diaphragm and now he needs a life-saving procedure in order for his diaphragm to work so he can breathe. This procedure is going to cost him $260,000, which his insurance nor workman's comp is currently covering. Marcos had to come up with $15,000 of his own in order for him to even get the surgery. Well, he's had the procedure and is on the mend. However, he is still coughing up blood and was recently admitted to the ICU. We really need to help Marcos out. And I'm not a person that often will ask for money from people, But I think this is a super important cause, especially for somebody going through COVID and the economic downturn that we've experienced socially. Marcos needs our help. Let's rally together and really help him out. If you're unable to donate, please feel free to share some positive words of encouragement and please share these posts as well as this episode so more people can find out and help Marcos. Our guest today is someone I not only admire, but I am also grateful to know. Eric Litzenberg is now the fire chief of a combination fire department after being the fire chief of an all-career paid fire department. Eric has also obtained a master's degree in public health, a postgraduate degree in homeland security, and a postgraduate degree in executive leadership from the Naval Academy. As if that was not enough to credential him, Eric also completed the Executive Fire Officer Program from the National Fire Academy in Maryland. The guest that I have is somebody who is a mentor, somebody who I've really looked up to, but most importantly, somebody who's been, um, I think, an encourager for me and somebody that I would like to be like when I grow up. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to welcome Eric Litzenberg to the show today. Welcome, Chief. Glad Um, to be here. No pressure after that introduction, right? I do want to say, though, um, Eric prefers to be called Eric. And for all the listeners out there, you may hear me reference him as chief. It is something that I will struggle with to call him Eric. 
um, because I, I do call him chief when I see him around um, out of respect for him and everything he's accomplished. So while you prefer to be called Eric, I will try to keep that in mind, chief, but I probably will still call you chief. <laughs> I'm good with however it comes out. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So thank you for being here today and everything you're going to share with us. Um, I'm really excited to hear what you have to say on this topic. And the topic we're talking about today is leadership. And leadership um, as a humanistic trait, but also leadership in the fire service. And your experience in the fire service, you bring so much to the table. 27 years, is that right? Yeah, yeah almost. Okay. I actually have to do the math myself. But you know what? It's pretty darn close to 27 years. Um, okay. If you, if you add up everything, cumulative. Yep. And you, so correct me if I'm wrong, but you started from the bottom. You did an academy. You I were did. a probie. You. And you know, it even goes before that. I started as a volunteer in the Hondo district if, if, 27 years ago when I moved back from college. Okay. And uh, so even, even before academy, I started as somebody who um, was ready to serve and, and ready to see what I could do. Relatively untrained, just with strong desire. How long were you a volunteer before you got into paid? Uh, so I was a volunteer for about um, three years before I got into the career side of things. And then I remained a volunteer for almost an additional, I tried to get a full decade in. It right. just, there were too many demands. Um, I felt like if I wanted to, to do other things in life and start having kids and, and actually have a marriage that was successful, that I, right. I had to give some of the things up. So one of the things I gave up was volunteerism. The other part of, of the equation was I feel like to be a volunteer, you really got to be committed and you really have to be engaged. And, you know, we're going to talk about leadership, but a large part of leadership is those who want to follow a leader and those who want to be on a team with a leader. Mm -hmm. And um, if you're not around to foster that, I think it's, it becomes difficult. And I wasn't around much, the volunteer ranks. So uh -huh. I felt it was probably not respectful, respectful for me to try to stay. Sure. So I stopped, but almost a decade, almost sure. a decade as a volunteer. Wow. And so you were being, you were experiencing both then the paid side of it as well as the volunteer side. And so you got to see both sides of the struggle is what yeah, I'm calling <laughs> I did. I did. Both sides of the struggle, the pros and the cons. Right. Yeah. Right. Neat. Okay. And then, so then you went to academy. And you were a probie like the rest of us. Just like the rest of <laughs> and us. And so I really want to highlight that and really point that out to everyone listening because it it really holds so much weight when you've gone through it yourself. And then as you move up through the ranks to, yeah. to look back on where you started from, I think it just really holds so much weight of like an encouragement of I was you. I was there. I know what you're going through. I it know how hard difference. it is. Yeah. Absolutely. So you, then you went to paramedic school mm -hmm. and you've been a paramedic how long now? Um, I finished paramedic school. So I was in paramedic school in the 90s. Okay. I was the last class of the 90s, which meant I graduated in 2000. So 20 years of being a paramedic. Um, I'm still a paramedic, still licensed. I'm not sure that it's um, ethical for me to be <laughs> licensed any longer. Um, the last few years, it really has been a struggle to keep it. But I intended, um, like, like I talked about, um, talking about education and in as I moved through a career, I always intended to figure out what was going to be the next step after retirement. And I genuinely thought, and I still think, I'll go back to some sort of service delivery. And I figured, why not be a resource if I decide to be a volunteer, for instance, mm -hmm. as a paramedic? Now, that wouldn't come without me going back and doing some educational and probably experiential 
stuff sure. to get myself ready to serve. I'm the last person you want on a med right now. <laughs> so, so do you need some remedial training? Because I know a fabulous company I owned by a fabulous yeah. paramedic who could give you some of that training. Yeah, I've still got the, I've still got a lot of spirit, but my skills need a little bit of refining. I got you. I got <laughs> <Yes>. you. <laughs> cool. Okay, so you've been a medic for a while now, and yeah, thanks for being nice on that. Twenty years. <laughs> twenty yep. years. And in that twenty years, I'm sure you've seen so many changes in EMS because yes. I feel like even I've been a medic for ten years, and I think even from when I went to paramedic school till now, I've seen an incredible amount of change, and not just change as far as like. Uh, the the profession build, but it changes in like how we approach treatments and what we do versus what we don't like. Even backboarding, for example, like that's a thing of the past, yeah. right? Yeah. So even those kinds of changes. Um, but I also want to talk about some change that you've seen throughout your career of 27 years and you starting out at the bottom and, and really just um, being what I've called and heard boots on the ground, right? Yeah. You're the one doing the work, the grunt work, washing the trucks, running the calls, right? right. Um, and so you've escalated up that ladder throughout this tw these 27 years. So share with me the changes in EMS, and then we'll jump into leadership. But sure. share with me, to kind of set the stage for people listening, the changes you've experienced from when you graduated paramedic school till today. Sure. So um, I agree with you. I think a ton has changed. And I do think Part of it is technical change. I think um, a lot of skills have been added to, to the mix that can help help us treat patients and the many different things that we see as EMS responders. Um, I think some of the stuff that a lot of us thought was probably old school and passe, even when we were doing it, has gone by the wayside, and that's excellent. So there are technical changes that are significant, especially somebody like me who's been out of the field and not necessarily the boots on the ground person right. for five or ten years, it's difficult when you come back in to see what technical skills are different and realize, like I do frequently, you know, wow, there's a lot of stuff that I didn't learn in school or didn't learn over the years, which I've got to catch up on. So, I, you know, I don't want to dismiss the technical things as, as little pieces. But in general, the change that I've seen, which is probably more significant than any little technical piece, is the professionalism of our business. I do feel like 20, 25, almost 30 years ago when I started in the business, there were, there were more, um, there was more of a mix of somewhere between trade and profession, both in how we were treated and how we act and then the people who were getting into the mix. Mm -hmm. You really did have a lot of people who had been, you know, 15, 20-year plumbers or contractors or electricians who were doing this as a side job in order to be able to run their businesses. Mm -hmm. And they knew they got good benefits, so they knew that it was a, a solid career that gave them a good paycheck, et cetera, et cetera. There were more of those people 20 or 25 years ago. I think now you see people who are really getting into this as their profession. And there's a lot of things that fall. You know, we have educational programs that actually support this being a profession. We have degree programs. There's a bunch of different tracks you can take. You're not just shoehorned into some single practitioner track. I think there's a lot of things that come along with the professionalism, which are a big change in our business. And I'll actually say, I think that goes both for the EMS side of things and for the fire side of things. And often like they are in, in our agency and the agency I work with, they're, they're together. But um, both tracks have had a professionalism, which is pretty significant to watch. I also have seen over 20, 25, 30 years, um, the emergence of a number of things that I don't think I would have 
seen as possible early in my career. And the number one thing I can think of is mobile integrated health. I mean, yeah. how we serve anecdotally, I think I was doing that as a paramedic 25 years ago, mm-hmm. 20 years ago, mm-hmm. when we knew the people in our in our response aid, uh, jurisdiction that if we went and we saw them during the day and told them to check their, their BGL and made sure that their sugar was on track, then we wouldn't have to go to them at two in the morning. Sure. But if we didn't do that, we were pretty certain that we were going to go to their to their house at night. And that was mobile integrated health. That was a proactive um, way of addressing people with emerging concerns. That's really become sort of more a norm in our business, and it's more accepted. And there are people who are actually just doing that. Right. And that's a big change. That, um, that is a shift. And, and um, also, some of you may have heard it as community health, community paramedic. It's it's that. It's going and reaching out rather than people who are um, unable to go to a doctor or just really for various reasons. Not It's not only physical reasons that the community we serve doesn't go to the doctor. A lot of it is mental health reasons. And a Absolutely. lot of people are struggling, right, with depression and they can't do their daily living activities, much less find an Uber to go to the doctor, right? And so we're basically bringing medicine to them, preventative medicine to them. And that's one of the roles of a paramedic now. Absolutely. Um, that's, if correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm understanding you to say is that that is the role, a recognized role of a paramedic now, whereas 25 years ago, that you, we were still doing you, not we, <laughs> you, because I wasn't even born. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you were still doing that, but it wasn't recognized as a role then. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I think it really the, the the sort of dividing line is um, EMS traditional EMS is almost purely reactive. When somebody calls nine one one, you go address the problem. When somebody has an injury, you fix it. Mobile integrated health, or like you said, community paramedicine, that is a more proactive model, and often using the same skills. I I used the example of somebody because that's real. We we had somebody in in our jurisdiction who we were guaranteed in the middle of the night would call us or their family members would call us because of a sugar issue, um, hypoglycemia mm-hmm. related to diabetes, unless we went in the middle of the day. And if we went and talked to her and helped her check her sugar, it was on her mind and we wouldn't go there in the evening. So there's a recognition that that proactive model, it uses the same skills as the reactive model, but it not only has an effect on the system and on the medic, because I don't have to wake up in the middle of the night and then that resource is available to somebody else who might need it. Right. But it has an effect on the caller too, on the person who needs. I promise you that person did not want us to be at her house no matter what time it was. She did at two in the morning when her family members would find her hypoglycemic. She was not desiring for that call to happen. Right. That was a bad thing for her uh-huh. as well. Although we saved her and we addressed the problem, she did not want that to be the way she was living. And by us proactively addressing it, it was making her life better as well. And I think all of us get in this business, or I think I hope we got in this business because we want to do good things for people. And it feels really good when you've addressed somebody's problem. And I think there's a recognition now in the EMS business that it doesn't have to be reactive. You can actually address people's proact- uh, problems in proactive ways, and it's just as meaningful. Right. And you're also, as you're talking, thinking about building community relationships. So if you know, we'll call her Jane Smith, if Jane is going to have uh, an episode where you know you're going to go, you already know Jane is a person, right? And we, we don't have the benefit of that with every call we go on because a lot of times it is only one interaction. We drop them off at the hospital and that's it. We never hear from these people or see them again. Um, sometimes we don't even find out what the outcome is of these people, right? So 
you're able to build with this community model, you're able to build a rapport and a relationship with the people in the community you're serving, which in a lot of cases can be your own neighbor, can be your own um somebody who's teaching your kids at school or it can just there's so many connections and it's Tons really serving the the would you call it then leadership <laughs> <laughs> you know what i think everyone in this business exerts leadership that's one example cool yeah. let's talk about it okay. okay so leadership tell me um what you what your thoughts are on the word leadership, but how it's more applicable than the definition of the word. Like how is leadership a behavioral pattern versus an actual uh, word and definition? Um, wow, that is a, that's a really good question that probably has all kinds of layers you could unpack. Ooh, unpack it because we want to hear what you yeah. have to say. <laughs> um, you know, but you can't, you can't use in the question something that I was going to have as the big bang conclusion, right? <laughs> so I do, I actually do believe, and, and that is a great question. I do believe that leadership is actually, um, it's a mindset. It's a set of behaviors. It's really not a technical thing. If you if you do leadership classes, um, like I've really appreciated and had the the pleasure to do multiple times in my career, you do learn the technical side. And this actually can go back to the beginning of this conversation. We talked about first technical and then sort of social cultural parts of of the evolution of EMS. It's the same with leadership. Having a technical basis is is good. It's a solid thing. And there's a reason why you might want to study leadership if you're interested in becoming a leader somewhere in your career. Um, but people exhibit leadership, the behaviors of a leader in all parts of an organization, in all walks of life. You don't have to have just strictly the technical side. And in fact, I think if you don't have the sort of cultural core of a, of a leader in you, um, it, it might be difficult to just rest on the technical parts. So mm -hmm. I think it is. I think it's a, it's a mindset. It's a set of behaviors. And I think leadership is a set of relationships. And um, you know, we talked a little while ago about my 27 years. Um, I, I actually firmly believe that earlier in, in your career, a great way to learn about leadership and sort of see what your place in it might be is to be a good follower, to really sit back and understand what is it that the, you know, quote unquote, more formal leaders are doing? Why are they asking me to do this? Why are they behaving the way they are? And ultimately, you know, how does it fit into an organizational mission and all the little parts that we're all supposed to do? A leader without somebody who's actually wanting to listen to what they're saying and follow through with what they're all talking about isn't much. They need people who are who are interested in following along with it. And I think earlier I talked about the team aspect. Um, you know, I, the, probably the best teams that I've worked with had leaders in all ranks, and we had people who had just come out of an academy, and sometimes people in a recruit academy who were to look at you, willing to look at you and say, "But why are we doing that?" That's leadership. You know, mm -hmm. like I, 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 when you talk about followers, I don't necessarily think it's good to just have a, a mindless follower who steps into line and does things. Or be a robot, right? Yeah. I, mean, I don't think robots are all that useful. There are times where it's sort of needed, you know, in war perhaps, or when you're really in the heat of a, a structure fire or something like that. For the most part, you want people who are willing to step out um, from the very beginning and say, that's great. Why are we doing that? Just so I can make sure I understand what you're trying to accomplish and I can help you accomplish that. Right. So, I think leadership is a mindset and it's a team set. It's a set of behaviors that includes following. And so I, I spent my early career trying to figure out, um, you know, what does that mean and do I want a part of it or do I just want to be somebody who goes out there and listens to somebody and then does. 
Sure. Uh, it's, yeah, it's leadership's a fun subject. It's complex. <laughs> it is. It is. And we're going to dive into it some more. Yep. Um, what, as the chief of a de- fire department, what kind of um, what kind of uh, behaviors do you display to foster leadership within your ranks or within mm-hmm. the field staff? Well, I think first you have to be willing and able to walk the walk. Um, I think it says a lot to people when you have started low in the organization and from the beginning like most of us right like most people start out at the bottom we all start out in an academy well let's even back it up further we all start out testing and we're testing with hundreds of other people for for 20 spots right so it's even like backing up we're all starting out with that anxiety and that's one of the reasons if i can just Side tail real quick. Yeah, uh, we'll get back on this. But uh, that's one of the reasons that I value you so much is because when I was trying to get into the department, you were the chief of then. um, You, I remember seeing you at the gym and you saw me working out and you just gave me some encouragement and you're like, just, just got to pass that test. You just got to pass that (laughs) test, and and that meant so much for me because you have a reputation, which is very a very good one from what I'm aware of. Um, a, a good reputation, and so for somebody. When you say walk the walk, you giving somebody like me who's just a, a nobody, maybe you heard my name around, maybe that's how you knew me, but um, for you, somebody who who I look up within the profession I'm in that is a role model for me to give me some kudos and to give me some encouragement, that's leadership right oh, there. That I agree with you. That, I think it is. Okay, so I'm, now back. I'm glad you saw it. <laughs> <laughs> I got lucky once in my career. <laughs> <laughs> Doubt that. <laughs> okay, so now back to leadership. So it's it's behaviors like that that really foster leadership. And it doesn't take somebody to wear bugles on their shirt to do that, right? It can be as simple. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. As simple as a paid member encouraging a volunteer or showing absolutely. a volunteer how to do something that they might be a little nervous on scene to do. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And, and, you know, willingness to step up is a big thing. But it does say a lot. You just talked about it. I just talk, It says a lot when you've started at the bottom or okay. pre-bottom yeah, like go everybody back, else. Go back to that because you were – I interrupted you. Oh, so go good. back to your <laughs> – go back to your – uh, It's an onion. There's all <laughs> kinds of layers. We'll find good stuff everywhere. But yeah, I'll, I'll go back. So yeah. um, walking the walk is important. Um, being ethical. And people making, uh, being able to see that the decisions that you're making are based on a strong moral premise, mm-hmm. that you're not really willing to compromise things that people might find um, emotionally important. Uh, ethical behaviors are massive. And I think probably some of the biggest leadership failures any of us have seen examples of, whether it's locally or with friends or nationally, or, or places where ethics have been compromised. Like what? Like, what, is there something you're specifically thinking of? Uh, I could probably start shooting off examples. Um, Let's talk about President Clinton. Great. I mean, there was a a big to-do about a very clear ethical compromise because of Monica Lewinsky. Lewinsky, And you can come up with examples like that. I think you'll be harder pressed to find examples of a a leadership failure that was more technical in nature. That's not the kind of stuff Mm. that we remember Mm -hmm. as much because, you know, the ethical bounds of a leader, it's, it's a big deal. And along with that comes consistency. And um, I think one of the things that we worked on a lot with the leadership group in the city and I'm trying to do it in the county as well is um, be very consistent in your decision making and how it's applied to everybody across the organization, including how it's applied to yourself, including mm-hmm. how it's applied to people we work for. 
um, whether it be the county manager, public safety director, or commissioners. And we need to be consistent, and people need to understand that um, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And when they see that, I think it's a strong leadership attribute. People people go, okay, I know exactly what I'm getting. This, pers- this person is not only ethical, but um, I understand their decision-making, and you can trust that even if I don't agree with whatever decision comes out the back end, it's going to be for the right reasons, and it's applied to me no differently than it is to anybody else. Yeah. Um, those are the kinds of intangible things. Like I said, I mean, leadership is a set of behaviors that's less technical and more social mm-hmm. or behavioral. Or those kinds of behaviors that I think people really look for. And when, when you, they see it and when it's consistent, they respect it. And I think the team is more functional. Mm-hmm. I, I could give you examples, which I won't, of things throughout my career that the people who worked with me on my leadership team didn't agree with. Mm-hmm. And usually the way that would go is here's what, what we're going to try to do. Here's what we're interested in doing. I need feedback. You know, this is a team. Let's all toss everything on the table. And when we come up with a decision, it's our decision. And so everybody tosses everything on the table. And in some cases, the opinions against it are strong. And in the end, we made a decision to go this way. And Mm -hmm. now you look at everybody on your team and say, this is what we're holding each other to. And that's the way we're going. And like I said, sometimes there were people on the team who said, I don't agree with this at all. I think this is going to fail. Or I think you're uh, a jack of da-da-da-da-da. And I don't want to do this. But I know where that decision-making came from. I was part of it. And so I'm not going to go around and, and spin it out of control and be against it. And I'll bite my lip and just be a soldier and move forward. Because what are you going to do when you were included in the decision, when you were heard and listened to? You know this person is ethically bound. You know that they did everything they could to consider all circumstances, and they chose not to go with my opinion. Now, those are tough things to do, but um, you're not always going to have everybody on your side. But it's hard not to be on your side. It's hard to have people against you when they haven't at least been part of it. And they know, again, what your decision-making is comprised of and why you made it. And they know right. it applies evenly across the board. What, um, as, you're, as you're talking about that, the word that came to my mind, too, is transparency. Uh-huh. Do you Tell me your thoughts on transparency as far as the leadership characteristic. Yeah, so you're you ask you you really go down a good list of questions here. I wish it's just I would have brought. Yeah, it's the way you're <laughs> the way I am. But see, I think this is the way people who are professional and smart work, right? Um, we all think somewhat alike, even from different places and with different backgrounds. Like this is a pretty consistent thing we're talking about. These sets of behaviors, it, it really doesn't matter what you're doing now or what your past is. We're humans. We all, in many ways, come to the same conclusions. And so so the things you're going down, it's like a list that I've created that I shared with the leadership teams that I've been on and my expectations. I'm huge on mutual expectations. If we're on a team, I'm really interested to know what you bring to the table and what you expect of me as Mm -hmm. a team member. And that's mm-hmm. important to me because I don't want to just meet my goals. I, I want to meet your goals because I think if we're doing that, we're probably stronger and the organization is probably stronger, right? So, But I want you to also understand what are my core expectations. And you know, I go through this thing about what I just talked about, ethics, about consistency, about being honest and being willing to, to do what you would ask anybody to do. Right. Never ask them to do things you would not be willing to do. And then I say you need to be transparent. And if if ever somebody wants to question your decision making, you need to you need to be willing to tell them why you right. came to that conclusion. Mm-hmm. And I make a little disclaimer: we're in the EMS business. We all know we deal with protected information, so you shouldn't be transparent with things that you're le- legally obligated to keep private, of course. Sure. But anything else, you should be willing to stand behind. And if you're not, then you should question: why are we doing this? If I'm not willing to stand behind it, 
is it really the right thing to do? Right. And there are ways to move around that. You know, I go to your team, go back to people and say, all right, this is what I'm thinking. It, I'm not certain it feels right. What do right. you guys think? Uh-huh. Like, that's why you have a diverse team. I don't want a team of 15 of me because sure. I know exactly what the end result <laughs> is going to be. I only need one of me if that's what you know, I want. Right. 15 independent people. Well, not only that, but I think my <clears throat> part of my struggle um, is and will always be is that I question a lot of things. And a lot of times it's not received so well. It's received as like I'm being defiant or talking back or even as a kid, you know, I'd ask my mom why and she'd be like, because I said so. That's not a good enough answer for me. And the way that my brain works is I'm asking why to better understand the objective we're trying to achieve. And if I feel like maybe the way we're going about it is not the most useful way or the best use of our time, then I'm going to suggest, well, maybe we do it like this. If that's the goal, why do we have to do it that way? Can't we do it X, Y, and Z? And then it's like, well, we can do X, Y, and Z, but then you're missing A out of that. And this is super important because if you miss A, then B doesn't happen kind of thing. Right. And that's the dialogue that I want to help foster within our profession. But oftentimes it's looked at as like being defiant. And so that's why I ask about transparency and creating a culture where we're open to have those discussions. And it's not me challenging you. It's it's me just wanting to have a better understanding. And I don't think that's embraced yeah. very well. <laughs> well. You know, so leaders, you know, put it in quotes. Air for those quotes. Who we're doing air, air quotes, quotes. <laughs> leaders, people who are in formal leadership, formal leadership roles, um, I don't. I don't know. For those who are chasing a, a formal position, um, I don't know if people really understand how risky leadership is. There, there are inherent dangers to leadership, and I'll even take it out of formal roles. Even just people who are natural leaders, there is inherent danger to it because people they they sort of want at you, and some of it's good. Some of it, some of it is. People want at you because they want to pick your brain or they want to see what you think because obviously if you've gotten this position, you've got something to provide. But also somebody, there's a fair number of people who want to, to tear you down as a leader. And um, it's there and it's legitimate and it's real. And so you need to be, you, you need to have that strength and the confidence, which I'm telling you, I, you know, throughout my 20 whatever years of leadership experience, there are times when I was not strong. I just wanted to hide in a hole and like, oh my, oh my God, I can't believe like the end result dot, dot, dot happened because of what I told people to do. This is so embarrassing and people are mm. going to be, they're going to mm. hate me. They're going to laugh at me, whatever it is. They're never going to listen to me they're again. They're never going to listen to me again. Right. They're going to lose all my class, whatever it is. There, it, you feel it. You feel it whether in these more obvious formal positions, um, like a fire chief position or like the position that I did right before this, which is the city manager position. I um, mean, you feel targeted and at risk and it's scary. Um, and there, there are times when you just sort of know it's there. And so it takes a whole lot of confidence. Mm-hmm. And I think a whole lot of just realizing, you know, you can't control so much of how people are going to feel about this mm-hmm. that you just have to accept there's going to be opponents. And there will be, no matter how great you are. Some of our some of the best leaders, if I were to ask you the best leaders you've seen in, in your career, you'd give me a name and then we could find a half dozen people who thought that was the worst leader. That's sure. just the way it works. There's going to be opponents to every single person, formal or not, in a leadership role. And right. you just got to be comfortable and to be transparent, mm-hmm. to be willing to really open yourself up to say, I don't care who you are, where you are, whether you're in the organization or not. 
If you want to know why I came to this conclusion, I'll tell you. And if you want to know what things I tossed into the mix to help me get a good decision and who I talked to, I'll tell you. Mm -hmm. That takes a lot of confidence. And it honestly takes being humble because you're going to get slapped. Right. <laughs> and you just got to know that. So I'm thinking like, there's always going to be haters. Haters going to hate. Going to be haters. <laughs> <laughs> and not only that, but um, would you say then you need to be comfortable with confrontation? Yeah, I think you have to be, you know, you have to be comfortable with confrontation and in a really important getting to the technical side of things, a really important skill to have is conflict management. You have to be able to manage conflict because you're going to have it with people you work with. You're going to be managing it between multiple people. Sure. You're going to have it in, amongst community members, amongst members of governing body. Right. Um, and often it's not your conflict, but you got to know how to manage it. Right. As a leader, right? As a leader. Um, and, and a leader isn't just, uh, like we're saying, it's not just a title you're given or some sort of representation like the bugles on your shirt, right? A leader leader is a set of behaviors, as we're discussing. It is a set of behaviors. Right. It's all over the place. What would you add to our list? So we, we went over probably like five or six different behaviors. Would you add anything to that list that we might have missed? Probably. I can't remember the list at this point because apparently <laughs> memory is not a leadership <laughs> trait that I value. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I probably yeah, on any given day, if you, if you were to talk to me about leadership, I'd come up with um, a different set of adjectives or des descriptive words, which, you know, I, I think it leads to one big one, which is just flexibility. I mean, mm. you do have to be flexible. Um, However, you're looking at the subject of leadership. Like, it's very seldom when it's that single person who's out there barking orders that everybody has to fall into. You know, really, you should be analyzing situations, analyzing teammates, figuring out what is what is it that's going to make this group stronger together. Mm. And so, flexibility is huge as well. And like open mindedness, like being open I to other people's big. suggestions of something, even though if you already know that's the stupidest idea ever. <laughs> Yeah. You're still open to listening, right? And you're creating a culture of openness so that people feel welcome and safe to be able to express their opinion and ideas on how to do X, Y, and Z because yeah. they don't think A and B is important, right? Like, yeah, wait. you know, this is so. This your podcast is more EMS focused. If you're if you're looking at an EMS call and the strongest crews that most of us have worked on in our careers, even if you're the only medic, you're still looking at everybody on the really bad calls. You're looking at everybody on your team, looking them square in the eyes and saying, what am I missing? And nine times out of 10, that crew member has something. They said, oh, yes. here's what you're missing. Like, oh, my God, I totally forgot. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were, there were times when us medics were gathered around Know, the life pack trying to analyze rhythms or whatnot. And the basic was jumping up and down. Like, are you guys actually going to do CPR? Because this totally. person is pulseless. <laughs> like, totally. okay. Yes. No, everybody, you got to listen. Bobak and I call it going down the hole. Because uh, I used to train Bobak. When I first got out of paramedic school, Bobak was my partner. And I trained him um, on stuff I was doing because I wanted him to be in the loop of wh why I'm – he couldn't give mag, right? But I wanted him to understand why I'm giving mag in this situation so he Absolutely. could contribute to like, Sam, you're getting going down a rabbit hole. Come back out. You know, come back. Let's do BLS first kind of thing. And I think that's really important to foster that kind of environment with the people you work with. We talk about it in – um episode next week. I think it's uh, the importance of partnership. So we talk about that, but that's creating... You know, and partnership is also leadership. Like, that's the way it works. Both people in a partnership are mm -hmm. exhibiting like that. Again, this this leadership thing is just massive. It's not just this small little thing. Yeah. You just described leadership. 
you know, by both of you. You had a partner who was trained by you who was telling you this is somewhere we don't need to go. Got it. Oh, yeah. There's a bunch of examples of leadership. It's pretty neat. Yeah, it is. And I think if we can just get past like some of the barriers that prevent us from that, what do you think some barriers are to fostering this culture and these behaviors? Yeah, well, one of them is fear. Uh, fear I, of what? I, I think everything we just described. Really? You know, yeah, I do. I think there are some people who just feel like they they want it. Like, And I think when, the, when you say it, it's much more around the formal leadership positions. You know, I want a paramedic job. I want the captain job. I want the chief job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like the it is usually something very formal. Mm -hmm. And once they start to realize what it really means, it comes along with responsibility. It comes along with, well, the need to learn new skills. It comes along with the need to be transparent and ethically bound and willing to be criticized and et cetera. I think there's a ton of fear of that. I could see that. Um, And I think there's some people who don't understand it and Uh they just, they want it so bad that they shoot for it. And sometimes it's disappointing because you realize what, um, you know, those, those positions really mean. Um, I think some of it is plain and simply financial. We just have to be honest in in our businesses. There are fewer and, and, and farther between opportunities to take the formal leadership positions. And, you know, so, can't happen for everybody. There's right. there's only so much dollars in a company. There's only only so many tax dollars in an organization. So formally, there can only be so many fire chiefs or assistant chiefs or EMS chiefs or whatever it is. Dot dot dot. Um, and then there's a bunch of people who look at our business and say, you know, why would I want to go into one of these leadership positions, make marginally more than I am right now as a paramedic or as an EMT, have that much more responsibility, not be doing the things that I love. Why don't I just stick where I am and then I can go get a side job somewhere else and you know, have a leadership role in that or whatever it is. I think there's a ton of barriers. I see. I do think um, you know, a- any single person who wants to has the capability to either be an informal or formal leader. But you sort of have to be open and willing to look at it as um, you know, something you're willing to take on. <laughs> I was just going to ask you, my next question was going to be, do you think that leadership is a learned set of behaviors? Do you think everybody has the potential to be a leader or do you think that people just have a in- naturally in- integrated talent to be a leader? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I think some people, and I think you could probably say this about almost every skill, not just in our business, but across the planet. There are some people who just naturally have it. Um, I watched uh, a documentary about Lance Armstrong the other day. And you can say what you want about the supplements he Mm -hmm. took. The guy was unbelievably physically um, gifted. And with or without supplements, Mm -hmm. he would have been one of the world's best writers, one of the best writers ever. That dude just had it. But if you go and you look at, you know, to keep on the the bike analogy, you go look at some of the past world champions. There's some people who had to work their tails off day in, day out. They did not start early in their careers with people going, oh, my gosh, this person is going to be one of the best ever. They had to work and work and work and work. And I think it's the same in EMS. I think it's the same in leadership. There are some people who just flop into it and everybody gets pissed off because they go, oh, my God, like that, he just has it. Right. Just, I just want to follow that guy. Everything he has is natural. And then somebody will be working up through the ranks like, eh, you know, and then all of a sudden, bam, they, they, they have it and it's natural and you're not getting it. There are others who are working – day in, day out to emulate leaders, to learn leadership skills. And I think it's, you know, to prop up what either is a, a, re- a real or perceived weakness in them. But I think those people too can work on their skills and 
Uh, you know, but I think you do have to be open. I don't think if all you're doing is learning technical skills of how to be a leader, uh, in the end, there's going to be you're going to be very compelling, and there's going to be a whole lot of people who want to fall <laughs> under your umbrella, right? Um, if all you have is technical, so but I, I think everybody has the ability if they really want to be open to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point that you make about some of us have to work harder at it. Like some people, <laughs> I think of like working out. Some people just have like these amazing bodies and don't have to try so hard. And some Doesn't of us have you? to work really <laughs> I, hard. <laughs> bugs all of us. <laughs> so I, I, I feel ya. yeah. Um, I don't think leadership is any different than the physical example you just gave. I really don't. Some people have the gift. Some people don't. But everybody can get to the oh, same level. That's I really good. I think it's... Just what level of work do you have to I'm gonna, do? I'm going to put that on a quote like on Pinterest or something. Yeah, well, say it again. That was I good. can't. This is the memory <laughs> thing again. Luckily, this is recorded. I would <laughs> say I'll <laughs> press rewind. <laughs> is that even a thing anymore? Rewind or am I like dating myself? <laughs> I understood. So we're dated together. <laughs> again, I'm not older than 25. Um, okay. So let's talk about education and leadership. Um, I want to kind of preface this this topic by saying that when I got into the fire service 2007, um, having a degree was not a thing. Right. Like it was just nobody did. They, they, I don't even know if there were even programs offered to get a degree. And even if they were, you had to like physically sit in a class. And I remember the only reason I went and got a bachelor's degree was because I had just bought my very first house. Yeah. And I, all by myself, and I didn't, I was afraid that if I got injured in a fire or I got so injured where I couldn't then do what? the job anymore, yep. yeah, I wasn't be able to afford to pay my mortgage. And so I was like, I need to get a degree as a backup plan just in case so that I can make similar amount of money. Plus, I'm never going to find a good enough job if I don't have a degree. So that was really the only reason I got a degree. Looking back on it, I feel like it's... um really helped me gain um, credibility, I guess, um, because I did put in the work to earn the degree. Sure. Um, so tell me, share with me your thoughts on education and leadership and how those two um, intertwine together. So um, you just gave two things, two categories of reasons Um that I think education is important. And I think it's sort of a third that's more organizationally focused. So one is, um, you know, a lot of times our, our, our professional our career um, courses in EMS and fire and EMS are a lot shorter than people think, um, either because you leave the business or change how you're, how you're approaching the business, go, go to be an educator instead of practitioner, or because our retirements often happen quickly. Um, if you if you get to retirement, that's you know you hope that's what everybody's shooting for, um, and so I've always seen education, formal education, as something you're doing for that retirement. Because if you end your career in, in New Mexico, the career retirement for um, public safety, fire, and EMS oriented stuff was 20 years. Now it's 25. Mm-hmm. It's the that's that you're still young. If you started early, you're still young. And so, what's the next career? Do an education. You know, get a formal degree so that you have something to do. The second one is it does give you some sort of um, clout. It does give you some sort of uh, oomph behind um, what you have, whether it's perceived or not. It means something. And it, that's it does. important. It doesn't mean that I understood or even can retain or even totally. regurgitate <laughs> any of the stuff I learn, quote unquote, air quotes again, Absolutely. in that degree, right? But it's just a, something that shows that I did achieve certain benchmarks yeah. and achievements. It, it does. It means something. And it does right. mean something 
to a lot of people outside our profession, right. which is which is important. Um, but the third category I'll add, I just said the word profession, it is the professionalism of, of EMS and fire. And there's a number of things, if you look at research on what changes something from a trade to a profession, there's a number of components, depending on who you listen to, but things like an, an established and shared code of ethics, which I think in EMS we more or less have, mm-hmm. um, uh, a set of terminology that's more or less shared, um, jargon that's more or less shared, and again, I, I think we have, and sometimes people throw throw things like rites and rituals and traditions into that mix too. Again, we've really developed those in the EMS world. And then it's educational tracks that um, that support um, development of both the individual and the organization in that profession. And we're really starting to get those. They did not exist early in my career. There wasn't somewhere you could go for a bachelor's or a master's mm-hmm. or any kind of any formal anything in EMS. Um, and now there are. And there are a number of them, You're right. and they're pretty well established. Same goes for, for fire and rescue. There was nothing, and now it's more or less established. And they keep growing, and they keep getting um, better and, and more highly recognized. And more and more people are actually interested in making them part of their progression in the profession. And yeah. I, think that's, I think that's important. And so um, the value and the importance of education has changed in this business in my career. Now I think... It is a really strong component of what makes somebody, makes the whole picture of them complete. And there are some people who just want to pound out um, EMS calls and they want to be practitioners and they're very happy doing that. Sure. And it doesn't mean that that, that a formal education isn't going to be solid for that person. It very, very well might be. But there are a whole number of other people who are interested in making something that's a little bit deeper, more rich than that. And they want to know whether it's about leadership or whether about research in EMS or how do I contribute more to the field than just being somebody who's delivering EMS? How can I start to create the future? And I think those kinds of things happen much more in educational settings. And then at the intersection of education and operations or practitioners, um, that, that's really where that, that gains footing and starts to sprint. Right. And so, um, you know, I think both for, and you can sort of apply that both to the individual and how they're evolving, but mm-hmm. also to the organization. Once you've got an organization that's not just trying to do good work, but also trying to predict futures and look at data and look at trends, and, and that's, that's how, so we talked about community medicine and mobile integrated health, that's how those developed. They got formalized because there was somebody willing to start start putting data on the table and say, right. if there are you know, 100,000 medic units across the nation who were stopping at this person in there, why, we, why are we not formalizing that and making it so, well, we, let's try it. Right. And that comes from sort of an academic uh, mind base, taking what you see um, boots on the ground and, and how do you create a framework behind it. So you know, m- the many ways that education is important. I don't actually think um, that the diploma that you get at the end of mm-hmm. the project. Well, it really is cool and you know it's something to be proud of and it's an it's achievement. What, it hanging behind you is not the win. It's, it's what people <laughs> want, right? They want you to submit this piece of paper they when do. you go for a job or what or promotion or whatever, right? But but uh you mentioned earlier which we weren't recording at the time but we were talking about education and you were talking about the process of education and how you really enjoy the process more than the outcome, yep. meaning the piece of paper outcome, not the long-term outcome of what you've learned and how you can apply it and implement it, but the the outcome of just having the credential, right? So you talked about the process of it and the research. Can you share a little bit more about what you've learned through your own degree programs that you've attended? Um, those processes and how they have really shaped you and shaped sure. uh, your influence in leadership over certain departments. Sure. Um, so 
I was able to do, um, when I was at UNM doing public administration work, um, a lot of the research that I was able to do was focused on how an organization, how a public organization influences safety in a community. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so that's, that's of course, if you're talking about leadership being a set of behaviors or, or you know, behaviors ultimately being things that you're hoping to influence something, whether it's uh, an end result of a process or end result of populations, you want to be able to influence a, a community. Right. And so I did a ton of research on how to influence communities to basically promote their own safety and in doing so, propping up the public sector organizations that I worked in. So that, that was exciting. Um, I, I did some work at Naval Postgraduate School uh-huh. on, uh, again, this was mostly around um, both international and domestic terrorist groups. Ooh. But it was, yes, it was it was actually a huge learning experience, primarily around the international part, because I, I just, in my career, I hadn't studied a whole lot of international terrorism. But you learn a lot about of populations. what's happening, Yeah, right? and yeah. you do. And... Um, religious studies, as I really got into the, the international terrorism aspect, was something that I went, wow, I wish, you know, through college I would have studied more about how did, um, how did these religions form over time and, mm-hmm. and really how does extremism come from that and what does it mean and how do people respond to changes and, you know, their idols. And it's, it's pretty fascinating stuff. But ultimately what you're, what you're learning about is people. And what causes people to follow a certain person or not follow a, a certain person or follow a set of ideals or not follow a set of ideals. And uh-huh. So research in that aspect is oddly super useful in leadership, whether you're looking at terrorism or, or whether you're looking at how to lead a, a band of EMTs and firefighters. Um, and then right now, research um, that I'm doing for uh, trying to finish a dissertation, which I am another ABD, as they say it, somebody who finished the, the core curriculum and then spends a decade trying to finish the research. <laughs> Doesn't that everybody, must, though? Yeah, That's... I must really love the process. <laughs> um, I, I actually did early research on physiology of first responders. Um, we were measuring what's called a VO2 max, which right. has to do with um, you know, expired uh, byproducts of work. Of, of your muscles doing this. And, and there's a lot of science that says that that's a real good determinant of health. And of course, physical health and responders, as well as behavioral, but all of the above, the, the holistic look at that is extremely important. And uh, actually was able to help establish a physiology lab in the city of Santa Fe Fire Department, which unfortunately hasn't been used for about three years now, but it was a FEMA grant-funded lab, which is a world-class, world-recognized lab. Wow. And we were doing serial measurements of, of our responders. Was that through the PFT program? You were having PFTs do it, or person, uh, peer fitness trainers? Yeah. For those so that don't know what PFTs We had PFTs helping us. <laughs> yeah. Um, we also had the exercise physiology doctor students at UNM who oh, were helping wow. us. Oh, wow. That's cool. And we had a doctor out of the, um, he was then out of Reno and a pulmonary, a pulmonologist out of Reno who was helping do um, VO2 max measurements. We had a cardiology lab who was doing, who was evaluating the, the heart part of it. It was a, it was pretty well greased machine for a couple of years. Wow. Um, and uh, so, so the reason, one of the reasons this dissertation has taken so long that I, I really got wrapped up in the first or five years of, of me being ABD and the successes of that program. And it became less about 
completing a dissertation more about actually providing healthy alternatives to people and, and discovering things they needed to fix. Because me, that was actually the win. It wasn't. Well, that's the whole point. It is the whole point. The point is not just a dissertation, but the whole point was to really impact people's lives and use that information to achieve the paper. It's really what it's about. Dissertation, right? It's really what it's about to make change. And that's you know, I I consider that the win, and and never Mm -hmm. never went anything Mm -hmm. past that. And now I'm looking more at the social side of things and. Uh, how groups, in groups, and out groups are are formed inside oh, first now's, response now's units. Now's the time. It is I mean, pretty not, fascinating. Not just with first responders, but socially, right? That we have Absolutely. all these social groups coming together and tearing each other apart. Well, or... you know, and you know, I think I think EMS organizations are a microcosm of that. You know, we mm. talked about the dangers of leadership yeah, before. Yeah. I think that same thing exists in our organizations, and now so. My, or most of my early career was in an all-career department, and and now I'm in a combination department where uh-huh. there's volunteers and career members. And often I'll hear about the the um, inherent conflict between volunteers and career right. members. Right. And I will legitimately tell people, and I believe this to the core, it's really no different in an all-career department. Um, just the definitions of your in-groups and out-groups are different. Right. And, um, and I remember being a medic. And thinking everybody who is not a medic or in my career, oh, you know, you're just a knuckle dragger. And likewise, the knuckle draggers will look at me and you're just a, you know, prima donna. Sure. You actually don't do work. We para- carry you. A paragod <laughs> is paragod, what we're told. You know, right? and that's, those are real legitimate social issues, just like we're seeing modeled nationally. So I think EMS, um, you know, we're a microcosm. Our organization is a microcosm of, of what you see nationally. And so that to me has become super fascinating. And all of these things I just described in my sort of educational background have all led to some research that I'm finding really interesting on how are these groups formed and what actually impact do they have on an organization, um, on the success or professionalism of, of an organization and ultimately the services we deliver. And really, ultimately, how do you undo that? How do you get people to find that less important and find the mission more important? Um when we're getting pretty close to the end of our time, but I want to, gosh, I feel like I could talk to you about this all day. I'm just like a sponge just absorbing everything you're saying. And I hope everybody listening feels the same way too. There's just so Boy, much. so do I. <laughs> <laughs> There's just so much depth and richness to this topic and what you bring to the table about it. Um, so I have a few ending questions for you, but before we get there, I have one question okay. pertaining to um, leadership. And if you like, You've been in long enough to see where we were as a profession, where how we've grown, where we're at today. Where do you think, like if you had a crystal ball or you had it your way, where do you think our profession will be in like five years? Is that long enough? Ten years maybe? Like how do you feel like leadership is going to shift or change, especially sure. if you add in all of the social unrest that's happening right now? I feel like with the... Uh, uh, upheaval or uh, resistance to law enforcement, I think that EMS is now being tasked and put in a position to have to face and become leaders sure. even more in public safety as well. Do yeah. you, so so you know, share so, with me. <laughs> so whether it's five or 10 or 20 years, that is, that is super difficult. That's a, that is a tough question to answer. Um, I hope, I hope that fire and EMS agencies continue to evolve. I think the success of our organizations is because we have been flexible and we've been willing to take on these new skills and new ways of doing business and evolve to our communities and 
eMERGE programs like a lot of the wildland urban interface programs you're seeing in fire departments that are mm -hmm. going and helping homeowners reduce risk or fire prevention. Mm -hmm. And how they're getting out and educating students or mobile integrated health. And, um, you know, these are evolutions in our business. And if we want to continue to be successful and have room for everybody to keep in this business and, and, and stay happy and healthy, um, whatever the organization looks like, it has to have evolved to the new norms. And you know, the more we can say yes and let's give it a shot, I think the, the public organizations that aren't as keen to do that are the ones that we're seeing suffer more publicly right now. And it's too bad because, you know, every one of these groups is important. So are you saying uh, being flexible? Because that was one of our sort of characteristics. Key. <laughs> sort of key. Yeah, these characteristics, these leadership characteristics are important for individuals and they're important for organizations. And be flexible. Evolve. Nice. And you did say emerge. I love that word. Emerge. <laughs> emerge. Okay. Okay. So now that we're getting closer to the end, I want to ask you a couple of questions. I always close the show by asking my guests a couple of questions. Okay? Yep. Three of them, actually. Um so if you could host a public safety announcement and bring awareness to something, what would it be? And it doesn't have to be about what we talked about today. It could be anything like helmets for kids on bikes or something. Oh, man, you stole it. <laughs> Did I really? Gotta, no. <laughs> no. Um, although helmets for kids on bikes, I have two kids who I have to remind constantly wear your helmets. The older ones already stopped listening to me. So we're good. The two young ones, I, but that is not probably my number one. I think there are plenty of people who are carrying that message. Yeah. Uh, probably the thing that is most important to me is the um, holistic health and the importance of it uh, of, for our responders. Mm. And both in that I put both physical health, which obviously, as we talked a few minutes ago, has been a large part of, of what I've done um, in my career and in, in, in what I've researched and valued. Um, physical health is extremely important, and you see it um, in fire and EMS with cancer awareness. You see it with cardiac and respiratory issues um, and a lot of underlying health issues that sort of seem to um, stay under under the radar. Right. It's, they, need to, they need to be elevated. Um, but also behavioral health issues. And, and the last few years of my career in the city fire department, I was trying to help a lot of our retirees through things that I saw later in their career and then after their career, just from the buildup of events of 20, 25 years of you know, being in the, in the worst of everyone's days, that, that adds up. It has a cumulative effect. And I think if you process it over time and you're looking at it holistically, there are ways to address it. Um, and I, I think behavioral health is just as important as physical. And if you put the two together, I think I'd do uh, public, general public announcements about awareness both internally and externally. There are so many partners in our communities who, if they knew that um, that we were dealing with these issues, they'd be happy to help. Yeah, I used the example of the UNM Physiology Department with mm -hmm. our VO2 Max. They're, they're, they were jumping at the opportunity to help responders, and I think there's a lot of partners out there. So that's probably what my message would be around. Awesome. That's great. And I really like that that's your message because it ties in like the whole point of the podcast is, like I said, to bring, uh, to illuminate the humanistic side of an often misrepresented profession. Great way to put it. And I want people to see us as humans, is to see us as people too who, who do absorb these micro traumas, as I'll call them, that do accumulate to big traumas where we end up struggling physically or mentally. Absolutely. Uh, so I really like that you say that. Good. Good one. Good one, Chief. Thank you. Um, okay. Next question. Ready? Ready. What is one thing you would want younger people to know 
that want to get into the fire service, what's one like piece of wisdom you'd give to them? And I'm thinking like if it's high school kids or kids who just graduated high school that are like, I want to be a firefighter. What what sort of piece of wisdom would you want them to know? You know, oddly, <clears throat> excuse me, oddly, I would want them um, to focus on empathy because um, I think understanding what makes somebody feel the way they do and then trying to put yourself in their shoes and feel it the way they do makes you a much stronger whatever you want to be, whether it's an entry-level uh, EMS, EMT provider, uh, whether it's a leader, whether it's a retiree, or whether you're the one calling for services. Like knowing what people really feel like to be in their shoes, I think, makes you a better human and a better worker and a better provider. And I don't want people who don't do that. Mm-hmm. So empathy, work on your work empathy. Work on your empathy. Start okay. to start to see it from other people's eyes. And learn what it is, right? Just Absolutely. Learn. Okay, last question. In one word, describe your experience in EMS and fire. Uh, honor. Ooh, okay. I think I would, I would say honor. Although there's probably, if I could hyphenate words, <laughs> I probably have a 60-word hyphenated single word. Um, but I'll stick with honor. I, I do very much appreciate that when you were the boots-on-the-ground provider, starting from day one, it's a pretty huge honor to enter somebody's life. Mm-hmm. You know, they, um, I've now seen it from another side. I got out of fire and EMS and went into city management for a while, which I just really didn't like. And I felt, I, I felt that honor go away a mm. little bit. People weren't inviting me into their lives the same way they do when you're in fire to EMS and you're wearing a, a uniform or you're not, but but they're calling you to come and do something, to fix their something. That's a huge honor, and it should not be overlooked. And, and likewise, you know, get farther along in my career when I was a captain, I felt it's a pretty large honor to have that group of, of men and women believe in me to, to actually follow directions or um, to even just allow me to be part of their team and not feel like an outsider. And, and I, I still feel that to this day. I feel like it's an honor to sit in my position and have an organization of people who are actually willing to trust me and mm-hmm. then look out at a community and, and have a number of community members that are willing to give you that honor, not not just throw darts at you and say, kick this guy out. He's a Yahoo. That's, it's a huge honor. And so if you, if you ask for a single word, which you did, I think I couldn't rest on any but that. Cool. Well, on that note, it's been an honor having you yeah, thank here. You. Um, thank you so much for sharing everything that you did with us. Again, I feel like I could just talk to you forever about this topic, but I definitely want to um, invite you back to talk about other stuff because you have so much to contribute. And I don't think an hour podcast really gives gives it um, the justice that it deserves. <laughs> thank so, you. Thank you for being here. I want to also thank all the listeners who are listening to us today. Um, I hope you liked our show. Um, I want to, again, thank Chief Eric Wissenberg for his time and for being here and sharing all his knowledge on leadership with us. If you like the show, please go to the Emerge Education Solutions Facebook page and like it. And we will talk to you guys soon. Stay safe. Stay safe.